Today's scripture reading is Daniel chapter 6. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went into his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he, is, as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. They came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he had heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. He labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that the law of the Medes and Persians, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians, and that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually, continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of the Lord's, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went into his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. And as he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O oh, king, live forever. My God, his angel, sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. 
Then the king was exceedingly glad, demanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones into pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He rescues and, del he rescues and delivers. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. This is the word of the Lord. Okay. Well, uh, good morning again, everybody. It is great uh, to be here. Today we are looking at probably the most famous passage in the book of Daniel. This is the story of Daniel and the lion's den. You know, this is a, a top five kind of Bible story. Every children's Bible worth its salt has this one in it. Uh, we're kind of familiar with it. But as I've been reading through it this week and studying the text, I, I noticed that it is very similar to a story we just read a couple weeks ago. It has a lot of a lot in common with the story of the fiery furnace that was back just two chapters ago. Uh, you remember in that story there is a moment where the faithful people of God are uh, pitted against this unjust law that that interferes with their worship, and they decide to be faithful and are handed over to a certain death. Then the angel of God comes and delivers them, and finally the king makes a declaration about how great God is, right? Almost beat for beat, it's the same story. Except there are two distinct differences. There are two things that uh, when we read these two together, we have to pay attention to, to the things that aren't similar. First of all, the king. In the story of the fiery furnace, King Nebuchadnezzar is the bad guy. He is the one that's pushing the action along. But in this story, Darius is on Daniel's side. He's desperately trying to rescue Daniel. The other big difference is, at the end of our story, the bad guys are dealt with in a very definitive way. And none of that stuff happens in the account of the fiery furnace. And so that's uh, something I think we should look at. Those are not insignificant details. Um, in fact, I think that is where the heart of this message can be found. When you think about this text being written for a group of exiles, it was written for the people of Israel who had been snatched up from Jerusalem and taken hundreds of miles away to live in this pagan culture in Babylon. Uh, this is where their message is. And also it's where we find our message today. Because the New Testament tells us over and over again that the church should consider itself a church of exiles that this world is not our home, and that we need to learn how to live in this place God has put us, how to invest in here, but how to live as God's people, knowing that we're exiles and this isn't our home. So that's where we're going this morning. We're going to zoom in on those two differences. We're going to look at the good king, then we're going to look at the bad men, 
And then we're going to see the message this has for us today. So the good king, the bad men, and the message for today. All right, the good king. Now, we've been reading this for a few weeks. We've been preaching on this since the fall began. Um, But the stories are back to back to back. And you may not realize, by this point in Daniel, Daniel is an old man. He has served under several administrations. He's seen kings come and go, but he's still hanging around. In fact, he is, uh, he's still occupying this position of authority within the kingdom. Unlike some bureaucrats who might find a nice, cushy government job and just wait it out till retirement, Daniel has not done that, right? Daniel is, is respected. Daniel is effective. Daniel knows what he is doing. And so when the king, when Darius tries to organize his government, he comes up with this plan to have 120 local leaders, and then three presidents who oversee them. But pretty quickly, Daniel shows himself to be excellent. He he excels in his position, and so the king decides he's going to create a new position. He's going to promote him to basically second in command. He's going to make him everyone's boss. He's going to be over even the presidents. The king loves Daniel. The king respects Daniel because he's excellent, because he's trustworthy, because he is faithful in everything that he does. But the other guys, they don't. In fact, it tells us here that the other leaders, they hate Daniel. And so when they get word that he's going to get this promotion, they try to find a way to cut him down. They, They look for something to create a smear campaign against him, and they can't find anything. There's no dirt there, right? There's no, there's no Trump University for Daniel. There's, there's no uh, private email server for Daniel. They, they check his Twitter account, and it's just Bible verses, right? <laughs> there's no ammunition for him. So they decide, well, that's what we got to do. we got to go after his faith. We've got to use his faith against him, because that's the only place where that's, that's, that's his main characteristic. And so they come up with this plan. Daniel... Chapter 6, verse 6. If you've got your Bibles, you can open them. We're going to look at it today. Um, but verse 6, it says, the, the satraps, the leaders, they come and they say, O King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes a petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. So they come up with this plan that uh, appeals to Darius's pride, and he totally falls for it. He makes this law, he signs it in, a, in such a way that he cannot revoke it. And then here's Daniel's response. Verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows open in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and he prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. So the text doesn't show us, it doesn't tell us Daniel's attitude. It doesn't tell us his emotional state, but it it definitely does not say that Daniel's afraid. All we see is that he continues to do what he's always done. His actions remain unchanged, right? I like to picture him just kind of sitting on the edge of his bed in the morning and stretching, 
you know, walking over to the window where it's always open, praying. Another day in Babylon, right? Another king trying to kill everybody, but I'm going to be faithful. He's, his actions are unchanged. He's unfazed by it. So let's focus on this a moment. How would you respond to a situation like this? How would you behave in this same circumstance? Notice the edict that the king gives. It is a 30-day prohibition on worshiping anyone but him. It's a 30-day prohibition on worship. It's a 30-day prohibition on prayer. But it's, he's not forcing people to pray to him. It isn't the same situation when Nebuchadnezzar made that idol and said, you have to bow down here. They only say, don't pray to anybody else. So in theory, you know, Daniel could have just played it cool and ridden out the month and, and, and been okay. How would you hold up to that challenge? Not praying for 30 days, not going to church for 30 days. Right? I'm kind of, I'm afraid that, that most of us wouldn't even bat an eye at that challenge, right? We'd say, well, I was already planning on missing two weeks. You know, <laughs> what, what difference is, is a couple more? No praying? Sure, I can keep not praying. For Daniel, this was not a law he was willing to consider, right? He immediately broke this law without a second thought about what the king wanted from him. This edict was so offensive to Daniel, and yet it would barely affect so many of us. Why is that? Well, I think it's because we love the wrong king. We aren't affected by this kind of edict because for many of us, our priorities are not like Daniel's priorities. It's not our relationship to God that matters the most. It's something else. Worship is, is not that one thing we are unwilling to give up. No, in fact, we're willing to sacrifice worship all the time. It's, it's often low on our list of priorities. I think an easy comparison might be with the way we relate to our occupations. Because that's the context, right? It tells us in the first couple verses, Daniel has risen to this position of great authority, that he's about to be made the second in command. So this is a, a big risk for him. But he doesn't mind that. He doesn't mind risking this big promotion. He doesn't even mind risking his life because he wasn't defined by his job. He didn't define himself by his work. But we do, a lot of times, don't we? Isn't that the first question we are always asking people after what's your name, you know, what do you do? No, we, we don't risk our jobs for our worship. It's the other way around. We sacrifice our worship to our jobs. We are a lot more likely to let those temporary edicts of bosses and deadlines dictate our schedule than we would let the God who said, Observe the Sabbath and keep it holy. On six days you shall labor and do your work, but on the seventh, that's a Sabbath day for the Lord. And it's easy to understand why we do it. We do it because we think our jobs are going to save us. We think they're going to bring us 
the, this financial security that we need. They're going to bring us a sense of purpose in our lives. They're going to give us an identity. And so we worship our jobs. We sacrifice to our jobs. We submit our lives to the demands of our jobs. Sometimes we even sacrifice the people we love to those jobs. And maybe, maybe as I'm giving this illustration, maybe you're thinking, not me. I hate my job, <laughs> right? Or I don't even have a job. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, don't, don't, don't let yourself be convinced that you're off the hook. Instead, I want you to just ask yourself, what am I unwilling to surrender? You know, maybe it's your sex life. Maybe it's your leisure time. Maybe it's your savings account. Whatever it is, wherever that point is when you say, God, I will do anything for you. I will worship you. I will serve you as long as it doesn't interfere with blank. Whatever that is. That's your real king. But Daniel knows better. Daniel knows better, and, and we should too. But if you're not convinced, let's just look back at the story. Okay, verse 14, chapter 6. So Darius figures out the mistake he's made, and he feels terrible about it. It says, the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed, and he set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. So Darius realizes that he has trapped Daniel, and he hates it, and so he works as hard as he possibly can to find a way to set Daniel free, and he can't do it. He's powerless. The only thing he can do is wait. Once Daniel has been thrown into a den of lions, all he can do is wait anxiously through the night to see what happens. It makes you wonder how those uh, first recipients must have thought about this story. How those Israelites living in exile would have felt about this account. Because so much of this book has had a different message. It's, it's been saying that the wicked king cannot ultimately destroy you, right? Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, these, these evil kings cannot ultimately bring down this nation because God is sovereign, he is in control. But now we have a, a different side of this message. It says the good king cannot save you. In other words, this comfortable, bustling city that you found yourself in, this city of Babylon where it's prosperous, where things are going well for you, this comfortable life that you're living in, it cannot be your final hope. Good kings, no matter how well-intentioned they might be, good kings can't save you. A good king cannot sit in the place that was meant for the king of kings. And for us, that message is the same. Folks, the good things in your life cannot be the ultimate things. If your hope is in your job, what's going to happen when you lose it? If your hope is in another person, what's going to happen when they're gone? If it's your money, what are you going to do when it all runs out? I'm convinced that, that the church today is in terrible shape because we have bought into this lie. We no longer believe with the psalmist who said, it's better to spend one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. And it's obvious, right? It shows. 
It shows in the way we worship. It shows in the way we pray. It shows in our life priorities. And you know where else it shows? It shows up in our anxiety. It shows up in our our sleepless nights. The good kings of this world are too small and they're too weak, no matter how good they may appear. So that's the good king. Now let's look at the bad men, the other big difference in this story. As the story goes on, it tells us Daniel was delivered. Right? He, he, he wasn't killed by the lions, but instead God sent an angel to shut their mouths and he was miraculously saved. And when the king finds out, it says, he was exceedingly glad, verse 23, and he commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded And those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, their children and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones into pieces. Hmm. This may not be the story you remember. I I read through this this week and I realized that we have run into one of those kind of Disney versus grim fairy tale situations here, right? You know what I'm talking about, how the Disney version of a story is always much nicer than the original? Where in Cinderella, when the the wicked stepsisters try to put on the shoes, they don't fit, and they get frustrated and angry, and that's kind of the end of their story. But in the, the original version of the story, when the shoe doesn't fit, the one sister cuts her toes off, And the other cuts her heel off and they put it in the shoe. And the only way they're caught is because blood is pouring out of the glass slipper. Yeah, maybe you didn't know this. (laughs) And then, what's worse, at the end, they decide they need to to get close to Cinderella and the prince because they're going to be wealthy and have good lives. And so they show up at the wedding and it says, birds peck out their eyes as punishment. And that's the end. That's how the story ends. It's not wedding bells and, and people riding off in a carriage. Now, when we read this story, we have this kind of Disney version in our head, right? We remember what we saw in the children's Bible. They definitely do, right? (laughs) Daniel is delivered from the lion's den. But the books, the TV shows, they always kind of omit this, this grisly death that follows, this terrible thing that happens to the conspirators. And probably for good reason. We have a hard time dealing with this kind of stuff. A pastor who I really admire, when he preached on this, he just left that whole part out because he had other things he wanted to focus on and he knew if if you read that, you have to address it, right? But I think this is important. I think we is it's vitally important to what we need to take away from this story. So what is that? What do we do with these verses? How do we handle it? Well, first I want to remind us again of of the exiles who heard this and what this would have meant to them. These exiles were living in a world where the enemies of God had won. They came from a people who celebrated the story of the Exodus, right? The story of God miraculously delivering his people out of slavery, of vanquishing his enemies, 
They sang all these songs about the power of God to save, and yet the reality they woke up to was this. The anointed king had been imprisoned and enslaved. God's temple in Jerusalem had been burnt to the ground. And all of his faithful people had been taken hundreds of miles away to live in an enemy land. To them, the world looked like a world without justice. And this verse is a reminder that God will not let the guilty go unpunished, like he declares of himself in Exodus. No, I think what we have here is what theologians sometimes call an intrusion. It's these moments when the final reality of God's kingdom breaks into history for a moment. Because it's not just the bad guys, right? It's not just the people who conspired that get thrown into the den. Did you notice? They also throw all their wives in there as well. How can that possibly be good news for anyone? How can, how can we read that and be happy about what happens? And if you read the Old Testament, if you're familiar, you know this isn't the only place where something like this occurs. There's plenty of times when God tells his army to go and attack a nation and, and wipe out everybody. Women, children, livestock, take everything out. But also you find places like Genesis 15, where God first promises Abraham that you're going to go into the promised land, you're going to wipe everybody out, but not yet. He says in Genesis 15, in about four generations you're going to do, do it, but right now you can't because the iniquity of those people isn't complete. So be patient. From these kinds of stories, we recognize that there is something happening here that's unique. This is a moment when God's righteous wrath and judgment are being carried out by his people. They're breaking into history for this brief moment in a very unique way. In these places, he's carrying out the kind of judgment that's promised us for the end of the world. And so we see here that this miracle is reminding people that one, God is able to save his faithful people. And that he will not let the guilty go unpunished. That there will be justice. And so for these people living in a world full of atrocities, in a world where they, they probably felt that there was no justice in this life, in a world like ours where a lot of times bad people prosper, this is a reminder that it won't be like that forever. Miroslav Volf is a theologian uh, who lived through the war in Bosnia. And uh, in a lot of his work, he talks about this idea that it's really only us who struggle with these kind of passages. People who uh, are from majority cultures, who are from affluent cultures, people who, uh, for the most part, haven't had to face persistent injustice. We're the ones who recoil when we see this, but for others, it actually brings a lot of hope to know that, that God is not fallen asleep, that he hasn't forgotten. The justice of God is, is good news in a world that's filled with injustice. But I think what really causes us problems when we read this story is that we start to ask another question. Well, what about me? Right? As, as we've already 
noticed, uh, when we start to line our own lives up, when we compare ourselves to the characters in this story, we don't fare very well. We don't find ourselves on the side of Daniel, do we? We aren't the ones who have been faithful to God at all costs. We aren't the ones who have looked towards our heavenly home and been persistent in prayer. We aren't the ones who let the pressures of the world roll off our back and rest securely in God, right? No. We're the bad men. We're the bad women. We're the ones who have put our hopes on our own advancement. We are the ones who have prioritized our own comfort and our own well-being above faithfulness to God. We're the ones who have served the small king and sacrificed much. And deep down, I think we know that if God were to show up in this room right now and say, okay, I'm going to call you to account for all the things that you've done, we're the ones that deserve to be thrown into the den of lions. We're guilty. And that should scare us. So then, that brings us to the message. Our message for today. What are we supposed to do with this? How do we handle this knowledge? So it's a story we all know. We know about Daniel and the lion's den. We, we remember the major beats. But once you start to look at it, thinking about this good king and thinking about these bad men, you start to realize that this, this cannot simply be a call for us to pray more. It cannot simply be an example for us to follow so that we will buckle down and we will try harder so that we'll be faithful even when the pressure picks up. But as Christians, when we look at this as the church, when we look at this, what we need to see is the true Daniel that we all need. You see, there is nobody in this room that could respond the same way Daniel does in verse 22. In our story, it tells us that when they roll the stone away in the morning to see if Daniel is safe, he says this, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. There's nobody in this room who could claim to be found blameless before God. In fact, Scripture tells us the exact opposite. It tells us that all of us are sinful and separated from God. That because all of us had bowed down to those small kings, we've all become enslaved by them. That apart from God, we are slaves to our ambition. We're slaves to our desires. We are not men and women of impeccable integrity. We're people who live for ourselves and sacrifice others. But God, it tells us, loves us too much to leave us there. God, in the midst of that sin, while we were still His enemies, says God the Son took on flesh and came to earth. And He lived a life, not just a life of excellence, 
but a life of perfection. And just like Daniel, he was conspired against by the elites of his day. He was found guilty before the law of men, even though he was righteous and innocent. And in that moment, instead of sparing him, instead of sending an angel to rescue him, God allowed him to take our punishment. Christ, that tells us, was beaten, that he was bloodied, that he was killed, that he was killed. He was separated from God when that stone was rolled over him in the tomb. But three days later, when the stone was rolled away, Christ was resurrected. He had defeated sin and death on our behalf. And here's the cool thing. Here's what I want you to to pay attention to this morning. This is the big difference, right? When Daniel came out of that lion's den, his life led to the death of all those people who had conspired against him. But when Jesus came out of the tomb, his life brought life for all of those people. The gospel tells us that Jesus took the punishment for the bad men and gave us the reward of life. He's the true Daniel who defeated the lions of God's judgment on our behalf. And you know, he's also the true king. He's the true king who is able to deliver his people, whose plans are not frustrated, but he delivers us once and for all. So here's why that matters. Because when you know that, when you believe that, he changes you. When you turn to Jesus in faith, when you repent of hoping in those little kings and hope in him, scripture tells us that he transforms you. When you know that God has saved your life at the cost of his own, he melts your heart. And then a faithful life is no longer about buckling down and trying harder and shaping up. It's, it's not about doing the right things more often. It's not about being more disciplined or being more prayerful. It's about being with the one your heart desires. And that means you go to church every week, not because you have to, but you go because that's where your family is. You don't pray regularly to avoid guilt, but you pray because you want to be in the presence of the one who loves you. And you don't stay faithful against the pressures of the world because that's what good Christians do. But you stay faithful because you know a God who's been faithful to you. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for these stories that are familiar to us. We thank you that um, these great miracles are, are points that we have to come back to and study and examine. But Lord, we thank you for the gospel that can be found in every passage of Scripture. We thank you for that message that you told us in the Gospel of Luke when you, you, you unraveled the Scriptures and showed how they were all teaching about you. And Father, I thank you that you 
have sent Your Son to be the ultimate Daniel we need. To be the one who has, has suffered in our place so that we can respond to You in faith and live. And Lord, I pray for anyone in this room today who may not know that truth. Who may be suffering under these smaller kings. Whose life is filled with anxiety and fear. And Lord, I pray that they would hear Your call and repent. And Lord, I pray for all of us Christians in this room who know better and yet often forget. I pray that as we come to this table today, we would be reminded of Your abundant grace and the work that's been accomplished on our behalf. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.